field crest towards Quentin. Um, turn around, I was driving down Quentin, I'm turning around and see if I can find him again. This is at Glover, subject 1074, electronic ID aware. NCJA 1014. Headquarters to 11-1205. NCJA 1014. Hello and welcome to the North Carolina Justice Academy 1014 podcast. I'm your host, Kirk Puckett. My guest today is Katie Shell. Katie is the Forensic Scientist Manager at the North Carolina State Crime Lab in the Drug Chemistry Section. Katie, thanks so much for taking time out of what I know has got to be a very busy job at the State Crime Lab to be on our podcast today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Hey, let's talk a little bit about you, if you don't mind. Uh, how long have you been with the Bureau and kind of what got you into the whole forensic science field? I've been with the lab and slash the bureau since 2005. I went through BLET and the SBI Special Agent Academy. And um, after the academy, I transitioned into the crime lab in the drug chemistry section. Um, Coming to the crime lab was really the number one place I wanted to be. Uh, It was a way to apply chemistry, my nerdy skills, uh, in, in a way to help the citizens of North Carolina. Right. So from an education standpoint, were you a biology, chemistry cat before you got involved with law enforcement? I was chemistry. (laughs) Well, what had you planned to do? I mean, was that always, was law enforcement your goal or were you headed in another direction and law enforcement kind of did what it does to most of us and draws you in? No, it was kind of always my goal. Okay. Yeah. It was always kind of something I wanted to do. I like figuring things out and solving puzzles and all that. So this was kind of a natural progression into chemistry. Well, I know you're you're no longer a kind of a hands-on scientist anymore, but back in the days when you were on the bench, were you sometimes amazed <laughs> at the things that you saw and, and the things that you could do with the technology? Yes, absolutely. Um, one of my favorite things, aside from doing the bench work, was uh, going out and investigating the clandestine drug labs. So oh, yeah. we did a lot of meth labs yeah. and stuff like that. So that was my absolute most favorite part right. of the job. Well, one of our podcasts featured uh, two of your coworkers, and we talked about clandestine labs. So that's part of our whole discussion on the opioid crisis, of which it has flourished in North Carolina, unfortunately. So that's going to be kind of our focus today. We want to talk about opioids in general, but but we'll try to expand on how they work, what they do, and some of the things that you all see in the lab. So I'm going to jump right into it and just ask you this kind of killer question. What are the differences that you're seeing between opioids like heroin and a synthetic opioid like fentanyl? Um, at the crime lab, we do see everything. Yeah. Um, so opioid in general is just like a, a broad classification of all the different types. Okay. Um, there's opiates that come, the chemicals come directly from the poppy plant. Um, and those, some examples of those would be uh, morphine, codeine. Um, there's other types that are semi-synthetic, and that would be like your heroin. Um, those compounds are made with the drugs that come out of the poppy plant, but there's some man-making in process. Okay. And then there's fully synthetic ones like the fentanyl and fentanyl derivatives, um, which are completely man-made. All right. So y- you mentioned two words that, you know, if I took off my law enforcement hat for just a moment and, and I was just a lay person, two words that I heard that sound like prescription medications. So is it, do you see one that's more prevalent over the other? Or are, you, are you seeing more 
opioids like heroin, or are you seeing more of the synthetics? We are really kind of seeing a good conglomeration of everything. Okay. Um, heroin is the number three drug in the state, um, followed by fentanyl so far this year, um, as well as last year. But then all the, the prescriptions, the oxycodone and the hydrocodone, we right. do still see those a lot too. Right. And I'm guessing that the differences in availability are obviously one is controlled when you talk about codeine and one is manufactured and a lot, you know, I could mix it up in my basement and take it out on the street and sell it and I don't have to worry about getting involved with a doctor. So I, I guess control maybe plays a little bit of that as well. I w- yeah, I would agree. Mm-hmm. Okay. So obviously drugs have different triggers and and react different. So what specifically is the chemical in opioids that that makes it addictive? Uh, There's no one specific chemical that makes it addictive per se. It just has to do with the interaction of the opioids on the individual person um, and the interactions of those chemicals Mm -hmm. in that person's brain. Gotcha. Talking about how opioids work and those specific effects on the on the body. So if I'm a street cop and I see an individual who is acting in a certain way, does that say to me opioid? Just talk a little bit about how how they do work. Oh, okay. Um, so with opioids, you're going to see something very different uh, in an individual than you would see if it was like cocaine or meth. Okay. You would see the person. Uh, sleepy, drowsy, their breathing has slowed, um, maybe they're confused, um, whereas with cocaine and methamphetamine, those are uppers, they're stimulants, so right. you see somebody running around like crazy. They're be they're, a little bit more amped up. Maybe. Right, okay. their heartbeat would be racing, they'd be sweaty. Gotcha. Um, so it's, it's the complete like opposite effect. Um, you'd look for pinpoint pupils, uh, slow pulse, uh, again, reduced shallow breathing, um, unresponsive to stimulus from the outside like right. poking them or pinching them right and and so of course as as street officers depending on the environment as well you may be able to pick up on some things where if you go into someone's living room and you see paraphernalia lying around or you see powder lying around as opposed to encountering them on the street when there is nothing i i guess the the word is for a street cop just be aware of your environment and and look for things that are around there that may help you identify what that person might be on. Absolutely. Okay, so that moves us a little bit more specifically into the reason <laughs> you're here today, which is to talk about the crime lab. I apologize for getting getting so far out on the street, but that's where I came from. Um, what form is the most common that comes through the state lab right now? It actually depends. Um, the eastern half of the state, we see more of the powder form, the bindles with the brown powders, the white okay. powders, um, typical like heroin bindles. Uh, in the western part of the state, they see more the um, black tar heroin, the brown mm-hmm. sticky substance. Um, we do across the state see uh, prescription pills that okay. uh, are market like listed to contain oxycodone, hydrocodone, but we do have a lot of counterfeit tablets and pills too okay. uh, throughout the state. So right. the, the trends kind of vary across the state, and it's pretty interesting to me. Um, and then kind of in the Greensboro triad region area, they kind of see a mix of both. Right. And so when you talk about the, um, I guess what I would term not the real drugs, those are the ones that officers might encounter in clandestine labs? Is that kind of where we're headed in that direction? 
Yeah, you can really encounter everything. Um, there have been a lot of pill press labs where okay. they are getting the substances from overseas, the fentanyl, the fentanyl derivatives, and they're pressing right. them into tablets right. that look like an oxycodone or a hydrocodone okay. or an alprazolam tablet even. Right. Um, or we also get a lot of the bindles. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, and you talked about the differences between the eastern part of North Carolina versus the western part of North Carolina, and I just I kind of find that a little bit fantasizing um, and unusual. Has the bureau looked at any attributes as to as to why that is? I mean, it just seems geographically why the state is split that way with certain type of dope this way and a certain type of dope that way. Not really per se. Um, the only thing I could really think of would be maybe the, the, the highway system or the ports. Um, okay, right. But um, the DEA does have a fentanyl signature profiling program, and, and they put out reports. Um, we are one of the labs that participates in that program, so we okay. do send samples. And they do more the the profiling of the where did this powder come from, what network of dealers did it go down, and right. all that um, okay. So it's a very interesting program that they yeah. do run out of the DEA. Yeah, and I'm sh- and I'm sure there's some pricing that goes in there as well. One a little bit cheaper than the other. One more readily available true, than the other. True. True. Okay. We'll leave that to the DEA to figure that one out too. So again, getting a little bit more specific into the state crime lab, H- have you all seen an increase in requests for opioids testing come through the lab? Um. I would say in the last two years, there has been a dramatic increase. Um, in 2018, 36% of the cases that we did analyze contained opioid compounds. Um, between 2017 and 2018, we did see a 414% increase oh, in the number of heroin cases right. that we reported out, and also a 102% incre- increase in the fentanyls and fentanyl derivatives that we okay. reported. So in law enforcement, we're hearing more and more about fentanyl and the danger of fentanyl. Uh, I think I read one training bulletin that basically said, if you're in a room with it, don't get near it. (laughs) You know, put on a mask, put on gloves, go in the other direction, that, that it is the worst of the worst. So when you all get something like that in the lab, safe to assume, it, it, I mean, is that treated the same way as everything is treated? Is everything bad? In, in the lab, yes. We yeah. have special precautions in the lab that we right. take. Um, but as long as the officers are aware, situationally aware of what mm-hmm. they're doing, um, use the proper personal protective equipment, gloves, masks, um, don't touch your hands and face without, right. you know, washing your hands and stuff like that. Everybody can be safe as long as you're aware of your surroundings and what you're doing. Okay. Well, and, and again, going back to the podcast we had with a couple of your co-workers on clandestine labs, just you really can't be safe enough. There are not too many precautions that you can take. And I think as law enforcement officers, sometimes we just kind of go charging into a situation without checking up just a little bit. So we'll, we'll talk more about the, the quality and assurance in the lab here momentarily. But um, so we're seeing a little bit of a spike in testing as far as law enforcement officers who are submitting things. So, so let's say, for instance, I'm kind of got a little hypothetical thing on you here for just a moment. If I go to a residence where an individual is unconscious and EMS has gotten there and they say, well, we've administered naloxone and the guy's back 
everything's good. But I see paraphernalia that might be related to whatever caused him to OD. Should I submit that to the lab, or is that something that we just kind of hold on the shelf for the time being? I would hold it on the shelf for the time being unless you're charging somebody. Um, We only take cases into the lab when there are criminal charges pending, Um, but it is important evidence. If you are going to charge, that would be some evidence that would we would like to have so we can determine what's right. going on. Okay. Um, and I guess that all goes back to that, you know, creating that trail where if, if it was a syringe and it has liquid in it, where did it come from? You know, is that individual going to tell you where it is and then kind of take your investigation in that direction? But I guess what I'm leading to is I know you all have a limited number of scientists. I know you're serving the entire state of North Carolina's law enforcement community in three labs. And I guess I'm kind of headed toward we don't want to overburden what's already overburdened. Yes, please. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, please. That was almost a no-brainer, wasn't it? Okay. So, again, looking more specifically at what y'all are doing in the lab, what kind of results can be expected from forensic drug chemistry testing? Uh, In the lab right now, we only determine what substance is present. Uh, It's called qualitative analysis. We can tell you what is there. We Mm -hmm. just cannot, in in our section currently, tell you how much of that substance is there. Um, We do a variety of testing. We do screening, preliminary testing, such as color tests, crystal tests. Um, For the pharmaceuticals, we'll look at the identifier on the pill and run it against a database to see what is suspected to be in that that tablet. Um, And then we go into more specific instrumental analysis in order to confirm exactly what controlled substance is present. Okay. So uh, I know, too, that a lot of times out on the street that there, there are different field testing kits, and a lot of times I've, I've seen officers get really excited when something that's clear goes purple or it goes yellow or whatever the case may be. Um, from a scientific standpoint, how reliable are those tests, and are they kind of like walking in a room full of fentanyl? Should you should you use a little air of caution in there? I would use an air of caution. Okay. Um, the, the field tests are, are like our screening tests. It can give you a general idea of what might be present, but it's not going to tell you, yes, this is cocaine. Yes, this is fentanyl, okay. because there's false positives and other things that are typically mixed with the drugs right. um, that could cause a reaction with those field test kits. Okay, so... Caution is the word. Yes. Maybe not necessarily step on the accelerator before you pump the brakes just a little bit with field testing. Yes, sir. Okay. That's that's what they make the state crime lab for. That's huh? what we do. <laughs> okay. So what are or are there any limitations in the analysis? There is some limitations um, with the individual instrumentation. Um, each, each instrument has its own limitations, and that's why we do a variety of testing. Um, we require at least two tests in order to confirm a substance. Um, it just depends on the instruments. But everything that we do testing-wise, we, we'll list on a laboratory report what methods were used and what mm-hmm. instruments were used. Um, but I would just say everything has its limits, and that's why we do a conglomeration of testing in order to determine what substance is present. Right. Well, and two, I think this is a good place for us to kind of push the pause button for the law enforcement guys that are listening. I guess the number one question that they always have once they submit something to the lab is, 
what's taking so long. I think if they understand, and if you can kind of slowly walk us through that process of, of why a test does take a certain amount of time. And it's not, you know, it may be because of the backlog, but it's also because of just the actual science of testing itself. You want to make sure that you do it right. And when you do things right, sometimes that takes time. So just kind of walk us through that just, sure. just a minute. Sure. So when the evidence comes in, it gets a unique identifier, and as any law enforcement officer would know who does submit to the crime lab. And we generally will work in order that the evidence is submitted. Um, once it comes up onto our section, um, again, we do a variety of testing. A lot of the substance th these days are brand new things. So not only are we taking time to do the actual analysis, sometimes we have to figure out what drug is present. Is it a controlled substance? Okay. Is it not? Um, do we have a standard that we can compare it to? If not, mm -hmm. we've got to order standards, and that takes time. Um, I would say with the, the heroin cases, at least out of the Raleigh lab, we get hundreds and thousands of bindles that we have to count and we have to sort and make sure that there's powder in all of those bindles in right. order to group them together so we can do some kind of statistical analysis to say with a certain percentage all of these bags or a portion of these bags contain this substance. Right. Um, so there's a lot of inventorying and uh, we, we do only there's certain uh, precautions we take for to prevent contamination and by working one item at a time, one case at a time. So everything just takes time. Right. Um, but so we it's are safe working to say as fast it's not like doing a load of laundry. No, sir. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I think that that certainly well, it certainly helps me. And and I would just say to the law enforcement community, you know, understand what's going on on the other side. You know, think about that guy or girl who's who's working the bench in the lab that they are taking their time and they are working through a process, so to speak, to, to kind of make sure that the end product has 100% accuracy on it when it comes back. Absolutely, and quality. And there is a process to um, to, to rush a case. If, if you need it for court or there's some kind of public safety concern, um, there is a process that officers in the district attorney's office or the U.S. attorney's office can go through in order to expedite okay. the analysis. Um, and if there's ever any questions, just reach out and call us. We're okay. more than happy to help. Yeah, more good information to know. So uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the whole quality control and assurance issue. I know that the State Crime Lab is accredited. I know that probably did not come easy. No, and it did not. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about that for just a moment so that uh, a law enforcement officer, when he gets his report back, he knows that he's got good stuff and it, and it wasn't just another rush job where somebody threw some stuff together and went okay we're done with you let's talk about quality control absolutely um we are the state crime lab is accredited internationally under the iso 17025 standards um, and that just means we have a very stringent quality control system um, we utilize validated methods and procedures and instrumentation that are accepted in the scientific community mm -hmm. for forensic analysis uh, forensic scientists undergo annual proficiency testing in their respective disciplines. We are also individually certified in our field. Um, okay, so you, you have specific folks who are working on specific things? Correct. Okay. Yes, right. like I'm Didn't a drug that. chemist. I don't go do biology, DNA stuff. Gotcha. I, that's completely okay. out of my field. Okay. Um, we also have uh, policies and procedures in place if there's any need to address a corrective action or a risk assessment. Uh, our documents are all controlled. Um, 
basically it's just we cross our T's and dot our I's as right. much as we can um, to ensure we're putting out 100% quality right. product. And you really wouldn't want it any other way. So again, you know, I'll say to the law enforcement community, understand that what comes into the crime lab is a process. And when you get that process out on the other side, you can feel about 99.9% confident. Feel good about it, yes. Yeah. Okay, so that's a good thing. So let's talk about those completed testing since we've opened that door. Like any other form of evidence, be it hair, blood, fibers, so on and so forth, a report's generated. So let's talk about what that report will contain and how the test results can be interpreted by the submitting officer. I can speak to the drug chemistry reports. Okay. Just That's good um, enough. to put that out there. But the, the information on the report will be uh, the submission information, what, who's submitting it, what agency, the OCA number, date of offense, um, if there's a victim or suspect listed. Um, and then it'll also contain a description of the evidence uh, as the forensic scientist perceives it. Okay. Um, typically, we add a little bit more. It would be like plastic bag containing white powder or something right. like that. Right. Um, we'll also have a description of the results of what was analyzed and what was not analyzed, along with a weight associated uh, with that substance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just the bottom of the report will have who the forensic scientist was that analyzed it and who copies of the report are right. disseminated to. So once again, the process works itself and generated in a report format that even I could understand. Yes, <laughs> although the drug names are getting a little crazy these days. So yeah. if you see a lot of numbers and letters and consonants that don't really belong together, just right. give us a call and we can help you out. Yeah, so and, and that was leading into my next question. If I do get a report back and I, and I see a word that is long as the eight and a half by 11 piece of paper <laughs> that it's written on and I and I don't understand that is it okay to call and and ask someone at the, the state lab absolutely. hey what does this mean what does it do absolutely absolutely um my number is posted all over everything mm-hmm. the state the website and everything so yeah just give me a call I can either help you answer it myself or I can put you in touch with a forensic scientist that actually did the work and and they can explain in okay. depth a little bit more about what they did in that specific case but we're here to help the community so just give us a call um, yeah and that's we, awesome because I think a lot of guys are probably hesitant you don't want to be that guy who has to call the state crime lab and go I don't really know what this means so that I mean that's great information to have absolutely and yeah. and even if it's um we do list the schedules currently on the lab report um but there are since we're moving towards more of a class-generated uh, way of controlling substances. Okay. Not every specific controlled substance is going to be listed in Chapter 90. Oh, okay. All so right. if you ever need any help um, figuring out, okay, where does this fall, or the, does the district attorney's office need help figuring out where does this fall in statute, right. we'd be more than happy to help. Uh, also great information to know. So as we kind of start winding things down here, Obviously, you're the resident expert in this room, and, and you have been a wealth of information so far, but um, most likely to the majority of those who are listening, they probably don't have a good working knowledge of what it is that you guys do. So I'd like for you just to kind of take some time, uh, talk a little bit about your profession, any misconceptions or anything else about forensic drug chemistry that would be important to the non-scientist. Sure. Um, that was a lot, by the way. <laughs> now, just if you want to break those down one by one. I guess I would just say 
the forensic analysis takes time. It's, and I'm sure all your officers and everybody knows, it's not like the misconceptions on TV. Um, right. We spend a great deal of time inventorying, describing items, making sure we're doing thorough testing and analysis. Um, we do take our time so that we do pro- can provide a 100% quality product sure. in what we do. Um, and I would just say too about like the fentanyl, it's not to minimize the potency of it, it is a very potent drug, right. um, but it's not floating death. As long as you take proper precautions, you can be safe working with these substances. We work with them day in and day out. Um, make sure you've got your naloxone handy. Right. Um, wear your gloves. Put on your masks. Just just be safe right. and aware of what you're doing. Okay. So from your standpoint as the forensic scientist manager, it gives off the impression to a guy like me that you're pretty much in charge of a lot of scientists that are working in the state crime lab. What's their typical day like? So you walk in the door at 0730 <laughs> and uh, take me from there. What's it going to be like till I leave? Um, basically, what, what we do and what, what I used to do, we just come in, go into the vault, get a batch of cases that you're going to work for that day, um, start plugging and chugging through them. Uh, some, in, some samples may be running on an instrument, so during that time you can either open up another case. Um, we do 100% peer review in the state crime lab so we do review the work of other chemists so that does go into part of the process of um, which again takes a little bit more time. it does take a little time but at least you know when you're getting your report back that at least two sets of eyes have been on that report and the science and making sure all the data matches up with the conclusion and all that stuff Um, but it's it's casework it's interacting with co-workers typically what anybody would do on a normal day right Um, so you mentioned at the onset that Obviously, the state crime lab serves the entire law enforcement community in North Carolina from more than one location, I take it. Yes, yes. All There's right. a lab in Raleigh, and we serve mainly the eastern half of the state, a uh, small lab in Greensboro, and they deal with mainly the middle counties there, mm-hmm. and then one in Hendersonville out west. Okay. And I'm sure, like most other things there are a lot more cases to look at than there are <laughs> scientists to look at them yes so we are always hiring um <laughs> please come come work with us it's a great time and, and we do good work but yes there there's there's quite a lot of cases yeah and uh the closer you get to turning those cases around faster then everybody starts submitting more so right um so we're working as fast and as hard as we can yeah as always and i and i think too just to say to the law enforcement community, patience is probably a good word to use. Uh, and I mentioned earlier that number one question about being, where's my stuff? Um, you know, just kind of keep in mind that, yeah, we're working three labs. We've only got a certain amount of people, but we have got a big old 55-gallon barrel of <laughs> cases to work through. So just, you know, be patient and, and understand that when you do get your stuff back, you can get the best that you can get. Absolutely. Okay. My guest has been Katie Shell. She is the Forensic Scientist Manager at the North Carolina State Crime Lab in the Drug Chemistry Section. Katie, it has been a pleasure to have you here. You've certainly enlightened me, and I know a lot of our listeners as well. Thanks a lot for the work you do and and how you do it. Thank you so much for having me. Have you ever wondered where the funding comes from to support the opioid crisis in North Carolina? 
Most of you will say grants and state funding, but would you believe tobacco sales? That's right. Tune in next time as we talk to Special Agent Israel Morrow as he explains how ALE and tobacco sales assist in helping North Carolinians who are affected by the opioid crisis. You've been listening to the North Carolina Justice Academy 1014. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. If you have any questions that you would like answered, please contact us. Send any questions or topics you would like to hear discussed to ncjainformation at ncdoj.gov. We're here for you.